Please turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of the book of Romans, and we will read from verse 18 to verse 32. Romans, the first chapter. But let us bow once again for the prayer of illumination. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, illumine the page of Scripture and our hearts to receive thy truth and to make appropriate application to our day and our age and to the world in which we live and the nation in which we live. We know, Heavenly Father, that the United States of America is not the kingdom of God. We also know that as members of the kingdom of God, we also hold a citizenship in this country. And we are very grateful for Christian foundations upon which this country has been built, but have largely been forsaken, and we are concerned and tormented in heart sometimes. But help us to have trust, and help us to know as we read Holy Scripture, as has just been prayed, that there is promised the indefectibility of the church. Grant, Heavenly Father, that we may be moved to be better citizens of God's kingdom and better patriots, Christian patriots in this country, as we tonight think through these principles. And these things we ask in the name of Christ our Savior, praying once again for revival in our churches in America and in our land. In his name, amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. We begin reading at verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. This is the Word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. 
They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, the Apostle Paul in the Gospel, in the Gospel of Romans, uh, from the start has summarized for us the greatness of the good news of Jesus Christ against the backdrop of human depravity. He begins by stressing the gospel in the very first verses. He speaks of Christ Jesus. He speaks of the prophets that spoke concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And he continues to orient us in the beginning toward that gospel by saying in verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. And so the righteousness of God is the great theme of the book of Romans, the main theme of the epistles, that sinners are lost and undone, and they need, you know that quote from Cunningham, they need the righteousness that God's righteousness requires him to require if they are to stand before him justified in his presence. But Paul also knows that the theme of justification can only be the the huge truth that it is if we see our need for that justification, that we see that God is a righteous and holy God. And in verses 18 through 32, and indeed all the way through most of chapter 3, Paul will show the need that the sinner, both Gentile and Jew, have of Christ. Jew and Gentile have the same need for the gospel, even though sin may show itself differently in various cultural settings. Now, our society, by and large, believes that man is basically good. Our society believes in the perfectibility of humanity. This is largely based on a commitment to biological evolution that has been applied to the so-called social sciences. But how different from Paul, that is to say, how different from the way God thinks, who has given this revelation to Paul. Paul received what he wrote by divine inspiration. Man is not basically good. He was perfectly good and innocent in paradise, but since the fall, all men, that is all humans, are totally depraved and can do no spiritual good at all until God intervenes, regenerates, and saves. 
all mankind descending from Adam by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Adam's guilt was imputed to them and our nature was thoroughly corrupted. And Man needs saving. Man needs a savior and that savior can only be God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Man cannot save himself. Now, I must expound the text, and then I want to make two applications, and one of those applications some may think to be political, but keep in mind that the application is thoroughly moral and really does flow from the text. I'm God's ambassador. I preach only for one king. However, our king wants us to be concerned about the morality of the world in which we live, and I hope that you will look at all things in view of Holy Scripture and one of the applications pressing upon us because of the impending election is how Holy Scripture helps us as believers to evaluate party platforms for our voting. Now, let us get a good grasp on the text. The authority is in the text, and there can be no application without a correct understanding of the text. So, what we see, first of all, in this section are the steps of defection, steps of defection for a culture. And the steps are these. First, there is rejection of God's clear self-revelation. There is sinful, willful ignorance. And that's what he says in verses 18 through 20. There is truth suppression. He says in verse 18, kateko, it means to push down or suppress and there's a sense in which, in which no sinner knows God, that is to say, we do not know him personally until he redeems and saves us, but there's another sense in which every sinner knows God, because God's self-revelation is clear, but sinners reject that clear revelation. The way it's put here in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them in altois. It is manifest not only to them, but in them. Revelation, of course, is in nature. Revelation, God's revelation of himself, is found within man's own makeup, and revelation is found peculiarly in man's conscience. And this is why the man who says there is no God is a fool. There are no real atheists, only exceedingly foolish truth suppressors. A well-known evangelical of the 20th century said, the case for the existence of God is not so obvious that it cannot be doubted. Well, this is the opposite of what Paul says in this section and what Calvin insists on in the Institutes on the basis of this section of Scripture. God's attributes are clearly demonstrated. They're not opaque, they are clear, and they are perceived, though suppressed. The problem is not in the revelation, which is clear, it is in the perception of the revelation of God. So the radio signal is clear, the problem is with the receiver, which is fallen man. The point at which, says Cornelius Van Til, the point at which there is the most glorious display of the evidence of God as creator and bountiful benefactor is at the same time the point at which 
there is the most intensified concentration of the wrath of God. And this is why in apologetics there can be no neutral ground. The Christian apologist can always know that the unbeliever is rejecting what he deep down knows to be true. Now related to this, of course, is the refusal of the knowledge of God. In verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so he says, and he's speaking primarily of the pagan, they knew God, they refused this knowledge. Again, as Dr. Ventil used to say, as soon as man is self-conscious, he's a covenant breaker. And this leads to ingratitude. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Complete ingratitude. Think of how this is reversed in regeneration. You know how the Heidelberg Catechism develops itself along the lines of sin, grace, gratitude. Gratitude to God and gratitude for the gifts that he has given us. That is a result of regeneration. So in the midst of all of this, there is foolish rationalization. It's put that way in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And to go on and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So sinful man actually thinks that he's wise. He can become so darkened and so perverted that he can actually begin to think that that which is wrong is right. As we read in Isaiah 5.20, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And it leads, according to verses 23 and 25, to idolatry. They exchanged that self-revelation of God for the foolishness of idolatry. And they worship everything but the true and the living God. And so in verse 23, it speaks, it uses the language of glory, image, likeness. Don't you see that's a reference to Adam? It's a reference to the fall of Adam, what was lost. The glory, the, the image bearing, the likeness. And the false doctrine of evolution has been one of the leading manifestations of this idolatry, and the whole world has run after that myth. I remember the darkness of my own young young heart when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. And in the sixth grade, I wrote, frankly, a pretty sophisticated piece of nonsense (laughs) that thrilled my teacher because it was through and through humanistic and filled with evolution, but it was darkness, you see. I would go to the public library, and I would read on this theme, and then at age 13, God saved me, and he regenerated me, and all that just went away. I could no longer believe this dark theory, and I recognized that it was not science, but it was theory driven by ungodly and false presuppositions. Well, the result of this, of course, is that God let man go. Notice there in verse 
24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. In verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. No evolution here, people of God. Everything upward, better and better. No, it's devolution. A culture that holds to these things, that denies God's self-revelation, gets progressively darker and progressively worse. And now verse 24, in which we read, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, should take us back to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is coming in the future when Christ comes again, But Paul wants us to understand it's not only future, that God's wrath is at work now. And when we come to this verse 18, apocalyptotai gar orge theu op urinu, you'll notice apocalypse, the revelation, apocalyptotai, is the first word in the sentence. Revealed is the wrath of God from heaven. So revealed is the first in the sentence, stressing the theme that is underscored by the fact that it's a present passive, the passive voice indicating that God himself is the agent of wrath against fallen man. God's wrath will be fully revealed at the end of the age. Now reverently consider that. However, God's wrath in measure is revealed now. And if we ask the question, how, not that this is the only way, but in this text particularly, how is the wrath of God revealed? Well, in verse 24, in verse 26, in verse 28, the verb parodidomi, hand over, give over, deliver, give up, God simply increasingly lifts the restraints. And he allows the depravity to grow and to rule in a society. As A.T. Robertson says about this hand over or give over, he says, the words sound to us like clods on the coffin as God leaves men to work their own wicked will. And those of you who are familiar with uh, Charles Hodge's magnificent commentary on the book of Romans know that what he says about this passage is, sin is the punishment of sin. How do we see the wrath of God? He gives the culture over to its sin. Where do we see his punishment? More sin. Sin is the punishment of sin. Which leads us to the second thing we want to see about this text, God's wrath presently revealed. And here especially we see the dishonoring of the body. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. 
The inside is impure, and this leads to a lack of self-control of the body. Primarily, it is sexual, not exclusively. But it's perversion, sexual deviation. Again, as A.T. Robertson puts it, heathenism left its stamp on the bodies of men and women. Now, if you don't see that today, surely you do. Christians have a high view of the place of the body. Christ was incarnate. He assumed human nature. He went to the cross in a body. He rose bodily from the tomb. He ascended in a body. He intercedes in heaven as a body. He will bodily return for his people. 1 Thessalonians 4.4, 4, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel, that is his body, in sanctification and honor. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul says, meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The body. The body is not made for fornication. And just think of sexually transmitted disease. But he goes on and it gets deeper and worse because he talks in verse 26 about the degrading desire among women for other women. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Gave them up unto vile passions. And he uses uh, the word here, thelus, which means female. Contrary to what God intends in creation. This is tribidism. It's lesbianism. Charles Hodge says, Paul first refers to the degradation of female among the heathen because they are always last to be affected in the decay of morals and the corruption is therefore proof that virtue is lost. When you see that in a culture, virtue is lost. And then there's the degradation of men with men, verse 27. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So likewise, he says, men burned in lust, working that which is unseemly. The word unseemly, the the Greek term means deformity or indecency. Again, Robertson says, the debt will be paid in full. Nature will attend to that in their own bodies and souls. And so despite people who say differently in the church today, homosexuality is not right. Homosexuality is not natural. Homosexuality is not normal. And it is presented by Paul as special evidence of the degradation of culture. So where does this lead our culture? God's wrath is being revealed. Sin is the punishment of sin. You know, Dr. Butterfield's husband, uh, before they were married, uh, Kent Butterfield, at one point very wisely directed her to Ezekiel 16, 48 through 50. 
In that passage, we see that Sodom's sin, underneath it all, underneath the sin of sodomy, underneath Sodom's sin, was pride and self-indulgence. Pride and self-indulgence. Homosexuality displays a deeper sin of rebellious pride. But again, to return to 1 Corinthians uh, 6, where the Apostle Paul speaks of these things, uh, he says in verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the gospel, because he says in verse 11, to the Christians sitting in the pews at the church at Corinth, and such were some of you. That's what you were, not what you are. But you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And if there's anyone hearing this message that within his heart or in the use of his body has followed the way of the world, there's forgiveness in the gospel. There's forgiveness in Christ. And it can be said of you too, that's who you were, not who you are. And so God restores. God created man male and female. It's just fundamental and redeems sinners and restores them to a right relationship with him and then follows a right understanding and practice of what it means to be male and female. So dishonoring the body, degrading desire, and coming along with this, God's wrath is also presently revealed in the depths of depravity as summarized in verses 28 through 32. Now, I'm not going to read the verses again, but they refused to submit to God. God gives them over to reprobate or a worthless or a debased mind to do things that ought not to be done, and they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And he lists it, selfish, greed, malice, envy, murder, rivalry, deceit. The word deceit means bait. Malignity, whisperer, that means a slanderer. God-hater, insolent, stuck-up, boastful, inventors of new vices, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, undiscerning, treacherous, devoid of natural affections, that is, having no love for family. You can think of abortion, for example. Merciless. I've mentioned A.T. Robertson. He made an excellent comment. This was in 1931. Dr. Robertson said, the late R.H. Graves of Canton, China, Canton, China, said that a Chinaman who got hold of this chapter declared that Paul could not have written it, but only a modern missionary who had been to China. It is drawn to life because Paul knew pagan Greco-Roman civilization. China, but any civilization becomes uncivilized when it rejects God's self-revelation. Civilization is on the line. So here and now, verse 32, people really do know. Though they know 
God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So people really know that's why people are and feel guilty. That's why in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, speaking of Gentiles, the apostle Paul insists that the work of the law, he doesn't say the law is written on the heart. He says the work of the law is written on the heart. That is the work of the law to bring conviction of sin. Because God's wrath is at work, the work of the law, approval of what is evil, even though they know deep within themselves that they are approving what is evil. Now, people of God, this is a brief sketch of what could be a much larger exposition, but to be faithful, I will not tone down the passage. I never will. I must faithfully exegete the passage and apply it. In our present context, we must stress that God condemns the sin of homosexual practice and homosexual desire, sins which can be repented of and can be forgiven through the blood of Jesus, let me stress, Romans 1, 18 through 32, however, describes our culture in which our children are growing up. This is our fallen world. This is the pit of human depravity. And the time will come when all unrepentant sinners will acknowledge that they deserve the judgment that God gives and meets out. But remember, verse 17 and 18 both use the word revealed. You see it there? In verse 17, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So as the gospel is proclaimed, the gospel reveals the way out. But verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. And remember that's first in the sentence, revealed is the wrath of God from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And that brings us thirdly to two pertinent applications. And the first is an application to our 2020 election. Now let me tell you, I wrote three sermons for tonight. And one of them would have had a lot more about government and so forth. It was topical, but in the end, I, we've got to anchor this in exegesis. We have to anchor it, not in a few isolated texts, but... And then I wrote another one that was similar, and so I ended up with this. And Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalteth a nation... But sin is a reproach to any people. And I'm now going to make a few pointed applications, but let me ask this question first. Do I have a right as a minister of the Word of God to say this? And my answer is that if the Bible teaches that there is a national righteousness, that is to say policies that honor Him, and if I see that a party egregiously opposes what is right and good, I have the right and responsibility to speak on this as a minister of the Word of God in the course of exposition and in time of national crisis, and we actually are facing something that we've never faced, or to the degree to which we have never faced before. Due to the darkening clouds, I thought of it this way. 
Had I been a minister, a reformed minister in Germany in the 1930s, and there was the rise of Adolf Hitler, of the National Socialist Party, if I did not say to my congregation, you need to be alert because this is pagan, you need to be alert because this is a sinful direction, because this will enslave many a person and our nation, then I would have been culpable. It is the responsibility of ministers of the Word to uncover unbiblical philosophies. And so that demonic philosophy should have been uncovered by ministers in that day, and so the ones today. Proverbs 14.24, righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people, and it's going to lead to destruction when we do not have righteous policies. So here, to be very explicit, the Democratic Party, I'm, being, I'm speaking of biblical morality here, the Democratic Party has embraced, I'm talking about party platforms, the Democratic Party has embraced every wickedness sexually and in addition has embraced socialism. And I urge you to take out the Democratic platform. It's only about 80-something pages, easily found. Take the Republican platform. It's only about 60 pages. It hasn't changed since the last election, the Republican one. And contrast them. Compare them. I urge you to do so. Or to find comparisons. They're easy to find. And you'll see some eye-opening things if you do. If you read them in light of the Ten Commandments, if you read them in light of Romans 1, which we have just expounded, 18 and following, I can say on the authority of God's Word that to vote in support of the Democratic platform is to vote for what God despises, and it is to vote Romans 1 to become governmental policy. It's that clear. So I'm not dealing with politics, I'm dealing with the law of God. Our holy God did not take it lightly, for example, when Mr. Obama spread the White House with colors of the rainbow one evening, glorying in homosexuality. But he did what was consistent with his party's platform. The Christian minister does have a duty to speak out on moral issues that relate to the culture in which we live. That should not be the primary thing he does, but he does have that responsibility. And so he should speak out on abortion or the call upon civil magistrates to follow and restore justice. I'm talking about biblical justice. In this case, for example, the law, thou shalt not murder being applied to the unborn, and sometimes the born, to expose the sinful underpinnings of critical theory. And certainly the minister is remiss if he does not warn when the moral storm clouds have gathered and ominously threaten our children and their future and our very lives. And if we knew our Reformed history on this theme, we should see how these things have been approached in the past. 
If you knew, for example, of Samuel Rutherford's book, Lex Rex, Samuel Rutherford, one of the Scottish attenders at the Westminster Assembly, a great theologian, his works are soon to be republished, Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex, which means law and the king, or law is king, God's law. Probably everyone who was in the Continental Congress was influenced by Lex Rex. Witherspoon, from Princeton, Scottish Presbyterian theologian, president of the College of New Jersey, a Princeton, signer of the Declaration of Independence. I have his works. I've been reading some of them. Witherspoon and Presbyterians in the American War for Independence. You know, they said that in the American War for Independence, the brigade that the British most feared was the Black Robe Brigade. The ministers who stood in pulpits and preached, God is sovereign and not the state. Now, they did not, they, they did not set aside Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, and what Jesus said about paying our taxes. But they also recognized we live in a different situation, did Paul and others in the first century AD. We have nations that have been formed on Christian principles, and we preach for the maintenance and continuation of those principles and against the idea that a a sovereign king is sovereign over God and has the right to do as he will and what he pleases. No. And there was a reason why the great American historian George Bancroft, and I read this when I was a boy, I still remember it very vividly, in one of his volumes on American history, George Bancroft said that the fanatic for Calvinism was the fanatic fanatic for liberty. The fanatic for Calvinism was the fanatic for liberty. Because there was so much Calvinism that was at the base of our national existence. Moral issues facing the Christian voter include these. Let me give you a list. The moral issues that are facing us include the education of our children. Surely you've read recent reports from leftist school teachers concerned that if they they during the COVID time must continue teaching online, parents may learn how radical their teaching is And one of them is quoted as saying, parents are the problem. There is the recognition of our right not only to worship. You see, they don't care if you come to worship. They're fine when you are in a room and you you worship and do what you will. Their concern is that when you take your principles into the public square. So, taking our Christian faith into the public square in addition to our right to worship. Contra cancel culture. Law and order is a moral issue, obviously. The simple recognition that the civil magistrate has as his first responsibility the protection of his own citizens. That's right there in Romans 13. Uh, Protection of the borders is a moral issue. You can't have a nation if you don't have protected borders. Respect for the office of police officer. 
the judiciary having judges with a correct moral compass, idolatrous views on climate change, and essential truth-telling, whether it be what we saw for, what, three, three and a half years on Russia collusion that was completely made up, that bore false witness not only against a president, but against Carter Page and against General Flynn, ruined their lives, ruined them, and there was no truth behind it. I've never seen such a time when Isaiah 520 is more applicable to our national life as now. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There is the denial of our personal liberty, especially the right to say what you think if it contradicts the viewpoint of their platform. The right of Christians who own companies not to provide for abortions and other procedures for their employees contrary to the employer's conscience. Or the right to call a man a man and a woman a woman rather than it be called a hate crime if you do not call a man or a woman by some bizarre made-up pronoun. Have you not noticed how dictionaries are changing with culture? And that's only a beginning. And I add, just rewriting morality, such as Black Lives Matter, which has nothing to do with Black Lives Mattering. It's It may for some people who don't know it, but all you have to do is go online and read that what it's all about is socialism. It's a disgrace. It's contrary to love for black or any people for that matter. It's racist. And most of what is called social justice is not. Justice is blind. According to God's word, it is blind to color, and it is blind to whether you are rich or poor. Or tax dollars that are used for sex changes, which we as believers cannot approve. Or forcing Christian parents to give in to adolescents desiring such a change. In other words, that you must allow the mutilation of your child if the child so desires. What doctor or parent would mutilate another person, especially a child? Only one who has followed the digression of Romans 1. On the line is our opportunity to minister freely, and it will not exist long in such an environment. And at this point in history, this is the environment promoted by the Democratic Party, and I, as a minister of the Word, must preach against the unrighteousness and for righteousness. Now, you've noticed I haven't talked about candidates. I can point out the faults of the president. I can point out the faults of Mr. Biden. Uh, That would get pretty close to being a political speech, I think. The Bible doesn't say that, that, um, that as you as a Christian think through these things, all the candidates are going to be Christians. The Bible indicates that 
we need to be concerned with what fundamentally are the philosophical presuppositions that underlie those parties for which we vote. I mean, there were no parties in their day. Paul couldn't vote for who would be, who would be the, the emperor of Rome. But nonetheless, as we take the Word of God, that's the application for today. So, there are many things I could touch on, many things I could point out, but I'm simply talking about platforms. Compare them. They're easily accessible. See which protects God-ordained freedom. See which recognizes the law of God at all, and which does not recognize the law of God at all. And we have duties and responsibilities that would never have been true of Paul and the first century church. So we have to take Scripture and apply it into a situation that is quite foreign to theirs. And we will give an account for valuing these liberties, because do you believe that your liberties are actually God-given? Or do you believe that they are given by the state and therefore can be taken away by the state? That's fundamentally the issue. So if you read the platforms, I think it will be obvious to you that the democratic platform is right out of Romans 1. It codifies abortion as a right. It has nothing to say about the family as foundational, as does the opposing platform. It supports gender transition and hormone therapy. And it wants the United States to regain its leadership in LGBTQ issues. And it supports coercion contraception mandates for insurers. And it has not one word to say about what, are the found, what is the foundation for our rights. Nothing. This and more. Yes, I will say it is demonic. And then on top of all of this, how are these things going to operate if there is not a totalitarian state? And so there is the most huge push towards socialism that has ever existed in the history of our country. Socialism, the collective ownership and control of the means of production and exchange. You probably learned somewhere in, in your education. Socialism believes not in liberty, but egalitarianism. The theory is that people as a whole own and the state controls farms, factories, businesses, banks, insurance, and it levels society and tries to secure equality of outcome rather than equality of opportunity. And of course, the state becomes the be and end all, and it leads to totalitarianism. I'll give you a simpler definition of socialism. Socialism is legalized plunder. Capitalism may be abused, but socialism is wicked to the core. And it demands covetousness, and it breaks also the commandment, thou shalt not steal. And it leads inevitably to rigid totalitarianism and breaks all the reasons that the Lord has instituted government to protect liberty and righteousness and to punish evildoers. Eventually, totalitarian governments 
punish righteous doers. And so to write in or fail to vote this election, however, opens your fellow countrymen and your children's future to totalitarianism, and I do not exaggerate. Never have I been so explicit about political matters in the pulpit, but they are moral issues. And you know that this is not my habit, even when I have strong personal convictions. However, I think I would sin greatly if I did not warn against socialism, which is the great political enemy of the Christian faith. And we shouldn't just roll over and let it happen because we have responsibilities in this country as patriots and as citizens that, again, would not have been true for Paul the Apostle or for Peter. And we're facing a total trouncing of the law of God through this platform. They're not only left, they're radically left, and we're facing a cultural revolution of seismic proportions. And if they do not win, praise God, and God blesses us with more time and opportunity to preach the gospel as a church and to be free as patriots, you can count on it, it will come again. But mark it down, a vote for that platform is a vote for Antichrist. And no Christian can vote for it who knows what is in it. Go read it. Remember, just 90 miles off our coast, the Batista government was overthrown by one of the worst totalitarian governments ever known on this globe. The Castro regime. The Christians stood for the Lord Jesus in that hard time. And we, should, should hard times come, we must be faithful even unto death. If the Lord spares us, it will come again because of the total depravity of man. But we are secure in Christ and belong to a kingdom that shall never be shaken. In the prison memoirs of Armando Valadez, who for 22 years was a prisoner in Castro's Cuba, he wrote this. And in the midst of that apocalyptic vision of the most dreadful and horrifying moments of my life, in the midst of the gray, ashy dust and the orgy of beatings and blood, prisoners beaten to the ground, a man emerged at the skeletal figure of a man wasted by hunger with white hair, blazing blue eyes, and a heart overflowing with love. Raising his arms to the invisible heaven and pleading for mercy for his executioners. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And a burst of machine gun fire ripping open his breast. And one of the problems that we face today is quite different than many of you sitting here that are older. Our children don't know these things. Our children do not know where totalitarianism leads. They actually think it's cool to follow AOC. Cool to be a socialist. They're ignorant. 
at least they're ignorant and we need to teach our children time doesn't allow Richard Wormbrand that was forced to take communion using as elements his own human waste that's where it leads can happen in America sure it is it's happening now second application our great indeed greatest concern all the time and in this time must be the preaching of the gospel so this is a call to prayer Lord, do not give our nation over, but lead us to repentance. We don't want this for our children. We, we want a free nation. Liberties come from Thee. Preserve, we pray, our liberties. And you might pray Psalm 119, verse 53. Horror hath taken hold upon me because of the wicked that forsake Thy law. And the most important thing that you can do before voting on election day is to plead for your country. And things have been this bad or worse at other times in history. Not only in modern times, but I remind you that in 18th century England, you need to read J.C. Ryle's book on evangelical leaders of the 18th century or the smaller one, Five Evangelical Leaders. And he tells you how politically and culturally, in terms of individual morality, in terms of the church that was not preaching the gospel, with very rare exceptions, where the culture was in England in the 18th century. It was a drunk nation. Gin was everywhere. There was gin in the mother's breast. It was, you know Hogarth's sketches and etches and etchings and and pictures Hogarth go look them up you'll see what England was like in the 18th century what happened God raised up George Whitfield God raised up William Romaine all through England men who didn't even know one another who were in pulpits and were lost men were converted and they began to preach the truth and historians almost certainly rightly believe that England was saved from the same fate as France, a French Revolution, because of the preaching of the gospel of these men and God sending His Spirit, pouring out His Spirit, and bringing the evangelical awakening to England. And George Whitfield would go and he would preach on the commons and people would throw dead cats at him and rocks and he'd preach on and preach on. And the Lord blessed him. Read Symington's Messiah the Prince, our Presbyterian history, and be reminded that, quote, the Messiah is invested with dominion over the nations, and that there are duties which nations owe to the mediator, and they need to be pressed upon the nation. Call upon rulers to do obeisance to the king, the real king, the true king. Pray for leaders, left and right, to come and know the Lord, and for some to be removed from influence in God's sovereignty. Ask the Lord in wrath to remember mercy. Uphold the kingly office of Christ 
over the church, but also over the nation. And remember the words of A.A. Hodge when he spoke about education. Now, this is the mid-19th century. A.A. Hodge said, I am sure as I am of the fact of Christ's reign that a comprehensive and centralized system of national education separated from religion, by which he meant the Christian faith, as is now commonly proposed, will prove the most appalling injury for the propagation of anti-Christian and atheistic unbelief and anti-social, nihilistic ethics, individual, social, and political, which this sin-rent world has ever seen. Education without God results in this, he's saying. Hodge argued that the safety of the state can only be secured by citizens that are loyal to Christ and subject to God's law. And we have allowed the educational system of our country to radicalize its young graduates. And that means, where are we? We've come to the end of ourselves. Our culture is unraveling. Yes, there are notable exceptions. There are politicians that stand for truthful things. There are Christian preachers that are preaching the truth. Nonetheless, we have come to where we are because of the unraveling of our culture that has done what Romans 1 says. They have set aside, suppressed God's revelation. And more than that, they have set aside and suppressed the preaching of the gospel that made this nation great. That means we must pray for national revival. Without it, the nation will fail. Should it fail, our liberties will be suppressed and removed. And if this happens, the church will be persecuted. The church will remain the church. But that doesn't mean we invite persecution. And we are responsible on the level of political solutions It would be great to see some good political solutions. But you know as well as I do, that's not the fundamental issue. We are responsible where the fundamental need is, and that is the need to believe the gospel. So in it all, however, we are convinced that our sovereign God rules all events to accomplish his sovereign purpose Our calling, however, is to faithfulness as a citizen, first of all, of heaven, but also as citizens of the country in which we live. We are called to be patriots. And to remember through it all, God is God. The difference between a free country and one that would veer toward a totalitarian state is a spiritual issue, people of God. That's the point. And our country would never have existed were it not for Christianity. And indeed, I would argue that the distinctives of our system are grounded in Calvinism. Why do we have a system of checks and balances? It was because of a prevalent view and belief in the depravity of man. Calvinism and fighting for liberty have gone, long gone on together in the Netherlands, in Scotland. Do you know who the Covenanters were? Please educate yourself on this. The spirit of the Covenanters was felt in the founding of this country in 1776. So may we never lose it. And so I say to the president, 
Who knows? He may hear the sermon. I say to the president and to all of his staff and to the Republican Party and to the Democratic Party and to Mr. Biden and candidates Harris and candidate Harris and to Schumer and Schiff and Ms. Ocasio-Cortez and Omar and Presley and Tlaib, we're praying for you. We're praying that all of you will know Christ. We're praying that you can, those of you who are involved in leading our country into this darkness and sin, will believe and repent. We're praying for you. We're praying for the conversion of lost souls in both parties. We're praying for repentance from legislating abortion of babies and a desire to destroy the gift of our liberties. And hear this. There is one head and king of the church redeemed through Christ's precious blood. And true Christians, if they understand the issues, will not give an inch to totalitarianism in a free country where we can fight against it. So hear us, we are praying for you, Mr. President, for body and soul and for your family. We pray for believer and unbeliever alike in our government and all levels of service. And hear this, those in high places, there is one who is higher. He puts down one and lifts up another according to his sovereignty. And you have authority only because he sets one up and puts down another. And he is the sovereign ruler. And his name is Jesus Christ. And you and we and all need redemption from our awful sin. And we call on you to bend the knee to him who rules and reigns. And bend the knee now before it is too late. Amen and amen.